really all comes back down to, you know, how how can we as ethics and compliance professionals help to protect our organization by fostering a strong ethical culture and, you know, seeking to, to prevent and detect misconduct. Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76. Ethics and compliance. It's one of those topics that doesn't seem to be talked about as much as it should. For many organizations, this is about having some HR policies in place to check off boxes and maybe protect the company in case of a lawsuit somewhere along the way. But my guest today will tell you there's a heck of a lot more to this practice of ethics and compliance. She'll also tell you why those manufacturers who take it seriously not only have happier employees and work cultures, but a serious competitive advantage. Let me introduce her. Emily Miner is a senior advisor in LRN's ethics and compliance advisory practice. She counsels executive leadership teams on how to actively shape and manage their ethical culture through deep quantitative and qualitative understanding and engagement. A skilled facilitator, Emily emphasizes co-creative, bottom-up, and data-driven approaches to foster ethical behavior and inform program strategy. Emily has led engagements with organizations in the healthcare, technology, manufacturing, energy, utilities, professional services, and education industries, as well as education nonprofit and intergovernmental agencies. Emily co-leads LRN's ongoing flagship research on ENC program effectiveness and is a thought leader in the areas of organizational culture, leadership, and ENC program impact. Prior to joining LRN, Emily applied her behavioral science expertise in the environmental sustainability sector, working with nonprofits and several New England municipalities, facilitated earth science research in academia, and contributed to drafting and advancing international climate policy goals. Emily has a Master of Public Administration in Environmental Science and Policy from Columbia University and graduated summa cum laude from the University of Florida with a degree in anthropology. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, Emily, can you start by telling us what ethics and compliance or ENC as we've called it here is all about as a practice? Yeah. So ethics and compliance or ENC, as you said, as a corporate function is essentially about protecting a company's reputation and brand, which it really does kind of in two ways, by fostering an ethical culture and seeking to prevent and detect violations of the law. So that the how of that, like the actual tools and, and levers that, that ethics and compliance professionals have at their disposal, it's really quite expansive. And it's going to vary depending on the organization and your industry, your size, whether you're public and private. But at LRN, we often think about ethics and compliance as inspiring, guiding, and enabling values-based behavior. So 
ethics and compliance in terms of inspiring values-based behavior, that's really through codifying and communicating an organization's higher purpose, their values, their commitment to ethical behavior, responsible business practices, setting that tone from the top. And, you know, in so doing, inspiring employees to live up to that purpose, to live up to that potential. From a guidance perspective, it's how so we have our values, but how do we actually live them? Like, how does that break down and connect to me and what I do in my role? Why is that important to our business, to the community in which we operate, the customers that we serve, et cetera? And guiding employees around what's expected of them, how to identify risks that they might be exposed to, and what to do if they are confronted by those risks. So this guidance element is typically achieved through education and training and communications and having policies and a code of conduct, those resources for employees. And then the final leg of the stool or or what have you is around enabling values-based behavior. And ethics and compliance can do that by establishing the appropriate procedures and structures and controls, being a resource to the business, being a resource to employees if they need help, and creating mechanisms for people to speak up and, and voice their concerns. A pretty expansive remit, but really all comes back down to how can we as ethics and compliance professionals help to protect our organization by fostering a strong ethical culture and seeking to prevent and detect misconduct. What are your observations about how the practice of ENC has evolved over, say, the past decade? And are there any examples you could provide to illustrate that? Yeah, I think the the evolution of ethics and compliance has been really fascinating. When you think about sort of your standard corporate functions, finance, HR, et cetera, ethics and compliance is actually one of the newer corporate functions. And it's gone through quite an evolution back from when the the discipline first came on the scene, which was going back more than a decade back to Enron. But thinking about the past 10 years or so, ethics and compliance has gotten much more sophisticated in thinking about its role within an organization. It used to be sort of more of a checklist approach maybe 10 years ago. So do you have a code of conduct? Check. Do you have some form of of training? Check. Do you have a hotline? Check. And that was enough. It was just to kind of go down and say, okay, I have all of these program elements. Now, ethics and compliance professionals, organizations, regulators, They're really moving beyond that and seeking to understand whether or not all of those program elements are actually having an impact. Are they inspiring, guiding, and enabling values-based behavior? Are they informing how people are behaving and making decisions on a day-to-day basis? Which, to put another way, is is what is our culture? And there's, there's a recognition that you can have the best speak up program in the whole world with the the best hotline and and all of that. But if you don't have the right culture underneath to support that, it's not going to be effective. No one will use it. And we've actually seen this in a lot of the corporate scandals that make the headlines. So if you think about Wells Fargo or Boeing, Goldman Sachs, Pacific Gas and Electric, I mean, you can kind of go, go down the list of the major corporate scandals All of those companies that I mentioned, they had sophisticated ethics and compliance programs on paper, and they actually had 
people that use the established channels to raise their concerns, but the culture, how things really worked around there, the messages that were being sent or what was really important, that was the complete opposite. And so they got into those situations that, that they got into. So checklists are fine, and it is important to have all of those components of a program, but the emphasis nowadays is much more on whether those programs work in practice. I think a good example is looking at organizational policies. So they used to be written by lawyers for lawyers. It was very much like a CYA approach to protecting the company or saying, well, this employee signed a, signed a statement that they read the policy. So therefore, we as an organization, we're not, we can't be held liable. That's no longer really appropriate anymore. So the emphasis now is on are your policies simple? Are they easy to understand? What you know, grade level are they, are they written at? Are they translated to reflect your global footprint? Which, believe it or not, sort of seems like obvious that organizations should do that, but many of them don't. And so that's just an example of how a programmatic element has evolved over time. And kind of another mark of the evolution that I find really fascinating is if you look at the the titles of people that hold senior ethics and compliance positions. In the beginning, it was you were the chief compliance officer, and then it's chief compliance and ethics officer, then it's chief ethics and compliance officer. So what, what's putting ethics sort of above compliance or first? And then now we see a lot that are just chief ethics officers or chief integrity officers. And I think Looking at how the the titles of this role has changed over time is also an indication of what companies are realizing is important. It's it's not about it's not just about compliance with rules. Of course, it is that, but beyond that, it's about are we doing the ethical thing? Are we doing the right thing? Sounds like there's more authenticity kind of beginning <laughs> to to take root behind these programs that maybe were once just there because they had to be there to check the box, huh? Absolutely. So Emily, I know that you have led a massive study recently that was completed and published, the Benchmark of Ethical Culture Survey. Can you just talk about mm -hmm. what this was about and what you set out to learn with this study? Yeah. For the past 10 years or so, LRN has periodically sought to understand the state of, of organizational culture around the world. And it had been a while since we had done this, but with events over the past few years, the rise of stakeholder capitalism, the emphasis on social justice and equity, the climate crisis, of course, COVID, all of these converging forces, these, these converging crises that are impacting and being impacted by business, it felt like the right time to ask this question again. So what is corporate culture? What is it made up of? What does it look like? What does it do in organizations? And how does that vary around the world and across industries? And so we undertook a massive research effort serving people in, in companies around 14 countries, multiple languages, 17 industries, all organizational sizes, all role types from your frontline contributor up to the CEO. And we got nearly 8,000 responses that formed the basis of the research that we published in the report that you just mentioned. 
Building on that, what were, if you had to look at some of the key findings and in particular, those that were related to the manufacturing sector, what stood out to you? There's a lot. I'll maybe narrow it down to, the, or I'll start with three. I think at a, at a high level, something that was really exciting for us to see was just the degree to which culture impacts performance. And we looked at performance kind of in two, in two ways. We looked at ethical performance. So were people behaving ethically or quote unquote doing the right thing, particularly when they were under pressure, um, which is when it's more difficult to do the right thing. And uh, did people speak up about misconduct? So that was what we consider ethical performance. And then we also looked at business performance. And this is your, your more traditional business metrics. So financial results, customer satisfaction, employee loyalty, innovation, et cetera. And we did advanced statistical modeling to look at the various dimensions of culture and how they interacted with each other and, and influenced one, one another. And what we found was that a significant percentage of the variability in these two performance indicators ethical performance and business performance, a significant percentage of the variability in those indicators was attributed to the strength of your culture, where if you were an organization with a, a what we would consider a healthier ethical culture, then that was correlated to much greater business results, much more indices of employees speaking out about misconduct, making the right choice when under a, a tough situation, and just being able to see and quantify the impact of culture on these bottom line and risk mitigation metrics that are important to business leaders was really exciting. And, and to kind of go deeper into some of this, we wanted to focus in on what conditions, what elements of culture are most important when it comes to employees behaving ethically when under pressure. And what we found was that trust and organizational justice, which are, are two dimensions of culture that we measured, they really had an outsized impact. And to focus in on how this plays out in the manufacturing industry, what we found was that this performance under pressure dimension was actually the lowest scoring for the manufacturing industry. And so it represents the biggest area of opportunity. And our research and analysis suggests that if organizations want to move the needle on whether people are behaving ethically when under pressure, they're going to have the most impact by focusing on ensuring that there's a strong foundation of trust and that employees understand and have confidence in the organizational justice practices. And so I think that that's, that's really compelling. And, and we have a lot of examples, and we share some case studies in the report about exactly how organizations have gone about doing that. But I just think it's helpful to kind of target, like, if you have limited time and resources, which all of us do, what's going to have the most impact? And it's, it's trust in organizational justice, and particularly so for the manufacturing industry. So that's my number two uh, mm -hmm. key finding. And then the third is just the insight that organizational culture is experienced differently depending on who you are and where you are in an organization. So whether that's your level of seniority or the type of role you have. So again, kind of bringing it down home to the manufacturing industry, are you an office employee or a production employee? And there's a fairly well-established phenomenon called the leadership disconnect 
where the more senior you are in an organization, the more positive view or outlook you have on the culture of your company. And we saw that playing out in our data, but we also saw that being replicated by this role type of whether you were an office employee or whether you were a production floor employee, where office employees, by and large, had a much more favorable view of their organization's culture than production-level employees. And when we think about how the pandemic, how COVID has reshaped our worlds and disrupted our worlds and how important frontline people are, whether that's our frontline healthcare workers or, or, or teachers or the people that are packaging the things that we're buying online because we're not shopping inside stores or working in our utilities to keep the lights on or all of those, those critical frontline type employees. And, and there's all of these public expressions of appreciation and support. We really didn't see that play out in the data in terms of what the experience is like for these employees on a day-to-day basis. And so I think that that's important for business leaders to recognize and take action against. So that's my third main finding. So knowing our audience is the manufacturing sector here, how would you say manufacturing stacked up against, I think you looked at what, 17 sort of industry categories? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, 17. And manufacturing was actually right smack dab in the middle. So, uh, I mean, I, they, they think they were like literally the, the, the middle line of our full data set. So there are some, you know, areas where, where manufacturing really excelled. Things like what we call corporate ethics. So is your company as a whole, ethical, purpose-driven um, manufacturing scored fairly high on that. Emphasizing diversity, equity, and inclusion, manufacturing also scored fairly high on that. And then in, in other areas, it was, you know, trending more towards the bottom. So I already mentioned the performance under pressure, willingness to speak out was rather low and sort of a looking into to leaders and how leaders are role modeling. What are they role modeling? That was one of the other areas of opportunity for the manufacturing industry. But yeah, overall, kind of taking all of these dimensions of ethical culture together, right there in the middle. So some clear strengths to build on and some clear areas of opportunity to invest in. What do you think are some of the things that a manufacturing leader that's listening right now could take away from the findings of your study? I think recognizing that how, how you as a leader in an organization go about fostering a, an ethical culture, a, a healthy work environment, emphasizing our principles, our values, how you go about doing that needs to vary depending on the types of employees that you're engaging with. So kind of going back to that disconnect between office employees and production level employees, and just recognizing that the kind of corporate environments in which those two groups of employees are experiencing is different and appreciating that difference, acknowledging that difference, and modulating your approaches based on those differences. So when we do this work with organizations, we find often that it's so hard to reach production employees. They're they're not in front of computers. So how do we engage with them? We don't want to take them off the line because then that slows down our, our production capabilities. So we're not really prioritizing training them on XYZ topic or whatnot. So it's more about recognizing how can you work within those confines to ensure that production employees are as equal and active participants in your organizational culture as your office employees. It really drives home 
the need to rely on your middle management, your line leaders, your supervisors to be those ethics champions, to be those values champions. And we've seen organizations be really successful at providing that middle management group with talking points or a short vignette or exercise or example that can be deployed at the beginning of a daily, you know, huddle or a shift meeting. Those little ethics moments, they don't have to be these big in-depth, like let's step away and do a 30-minute training. It doesn't have to be that. That might be appropriate for your office workers, but just because it's appropriate for them doesn't mean that it's appropriate for your production workers or that you should even try to replicate that approach. So it it requires more, more thought, more flexibility in how you're shifting your approaches depending on who you're interacting with. But when done well, and we, we have seen many examples of when this is, is done well, the impact is, is really quite profound. And when you think about our current environment with the great resignation, and it's really it's, it's an employee's market right now, people are leaving left, right, and center to go to other companies where the pay is better or the the culture is better, the respect for employees is greater. That's happening all over the place and we're seeing massive labor shortages. And so anything that manufacturing leaders can do to recognize these differences and respond to those differences is going to help them be more resilient in the face of this great resignation and any other type of business disruption that we're continuing to face over and over again. Yeah, it's it's very real right now. Everybody I talk to is is facing the same problem, right? It's just it's hard enough to find labor, and once you have the right people on board, you know, be able to keep them and help them grow mm-hmm. and be happy in their jobs. So I think everything you're talking about today is really more relevant than ever for so many reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Emily, if you're leading a company that's not ranking too well right now against benchmarked peers, like what are some of the first things you should do to start improving your culture? Well, I think the first thing is to get really clear on what your culture is. So have you measured your culture, for example? And there's a variety of ways that organizations can go about doing that. Surveys, focus groups, uh, you can look at exit interview trends, you can look at hotline and reporting statistics. I mean, there's 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 a variety of, of ways that organizations are probably already collecting data or or could collect that data to get a handle on what what is our culture. Because again, we talked about the leadership disconnect. Me as a leader, I might think that it's one thing, but that's not necessarily going to match the reality on the ground. So the first thing to do is to get really clear on what is your organizational culture. And then you can figure out where you're going to focus. And there are some areas of culture, dimensions of culture that do seem to have more of an impact than others in some of the positive you know, indicators that, that leaders are looking at. So we talked about trust, we talked about organizational justice. It's probably a safe bet to, to focus there. But kind of stepping back and thinking about how, how culture is, is built and shaped, it really starts with your foundation of who are we? What is our, what's our purpose in the world as an organization? What are the values that are going to guide us as we work to achieve that purpose? How are we communicating that and breaking that down for all of our employees and connecting that to their individual role rather than this amorphous high level idea? How are our leaders reinforcing those messages? 
And that's that's really your foundation are our you know policies and programs in support of these. So does our performance management, for example, does that line up with the things that we say are important? Like what are we actually measuring people against? And then from there, thinking about the sort of your the work atmosphere in general. So levels of trust, organizational justice. Do people have confidence that Standards are, are applied equally across the board, that, that our top performers are held to account um, in the same way that those at the, the bottom of the corporate ladder are held to account. Being able to really make that clear through examples, through being transparent, talking about it, engaging in dialogue with, with, with employees, encouraging speaking out. And more important than that is, is to actively listen, listen up. We kind of, we say speaking out and listening up. We see a lot in this work that, that, that we do with organizations that employees do speak out and then they feel that nothing happened or they weren't heard. And so that really diminishes people's willingness to do so. Again, I mean, Theranos is, is sort of in the headlines again right now because the trial is underway. And here's an example where employees did speak out and they were actively not listened to and actively retaliated against. And then now you have the dissolution of an organization and its leaders facing a criminal trial. So focusing on on that work atmosphere, trust, organizational justice, speaking out, creating a place where people feel a sense of belonging. And then that is what translates into your the performance metrics that I mentioned, um, the ethical performance, business performance. So there's kind of a sequencing effect to how culture is, is built and developed in an organization, but it's really going to depend on your specific situation and where you are. You don't necessarily need to, to start at the beginning, so to speak. Like you might already be, be partway there. And so that's why this the culture measurement piece is so important. That's going to be What's really going to give you the the actionable insights? Beyond that, just communication and transparency are so key in demonstrating to employees that you mean what you say. Walking the walk, not just talking the talk. So when we talk about ethics and compliance, we often hear ethics and compliance professionals say, "Well, we we did do the right thing, and we we held our top sales exec he he or she." broke a rule or policy and we, we held them accountable and we disciplined them in these ways, but nobody knows about it. Mm-hmm. And our, our response is, well, tell people about that. And kind of the counter is typically, well, that exposes us to liability and there's confidentiality. And those are all true, but there's ways to share these stories. And it's through sharing those stories that people believe. That's how you build trust. So Sanitize the story, include it in your in, include it in your training. If you don't want to do that, rip from the headlines. There's a competitor that, that that's been in the news recently. Bring in that scenario and and talk about how could this play out here and what would we do. We see a lot of organizations they publish just statistics, so no details, but just statistics of we had X number of reports of misconduct and we investigated. 90% of them and 70% were substantiated. And these were the types of violations, harassment, conflict of interest, safety, whatever it is. And then these are some of the disciplinary actions that, that we took. We have one company that we, we highlight in a case study in our report that does that and breaks it down by level. So to really drive home the point that we hold everybody accountable, leaders as well as individual contributors, 
So those are just some of the ways that companies can and should be sharing how these things are playing out in practice. And it goes so far in building that trust among the employee population and that confidence in organizational justice. We consistently see those as being ranked like the number one thing that had an impact on me as an employee in believing in what my company says. So that's one tool that regardless of where you are and what your situation is, that can be deployed with great effect. Emily, is there anything you'd like to add to the conversation that I didn't ask you about? I mean, I think that a takeaway in all of this is recognizing that culture exists in an organization, whether you are intentional about it or not. So do you have the type of culture that you want? Culture is a a corporate control to be managed and shaped just like any other. And it requires investment and nurturing and clarity around what type of organization you want to be. I think that people don't really debate that fact that much anymore. We all kind of get that, that culture is a real thing. So where we are now, like the next step change is in that intentionality around shaping organizational culture, just as companies are intentional about shaping and tracking and measuring any other key business practice or desired outcome. And there's a lot of great examples of organizations that are doing this really well out there, and we should learn from them. I appreciate the perspective you're bringing to the manufacturing sector here. And I imagine the work you put into that study was just an absolute beast. So thanks for doing it and and for sharing some of the insights here today. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. Can you tell our audience how they can get in touch with you and where they can learn more about LRN and and where they can find this study? Yeah, LRN.com. That's LRN as in Larry Robert Nancy. And the study, the Benchmark of Ethical Culture, it's right there on our homepage. So you can download it there. And I'd love to continue this, this conversation. So I'm emily.minor at lrn.com. We'd be happy to talk with anyone who's listening. Emily, once again, thanks for doing this today. And as for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com slash learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.